0: Ezra chapter 1. Have you ever remodeled an old house? Have you ever done renovations? You know, renovations are never easy. You run into all kinds of snags and setbacks. If you ever tackled a remodeling project, here are four truths to keep in mind. First, it'll take longer than you planned. Guaranteed. Second, it'll cost more than you figured. Third, it will be messier than you anticipated. And then fourth, it'll require greater determination than you expected. This was the experience of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. The year was 536 B.C. Dramatic events had occurred on the Euphrates, In a miraculous turn of circumstances, this impregnable fortress, this bastion called Babylon, fell to a coalition of Medes and Persians. You see, the walls of the city were impenetrable, but in a shrewd maneuver, rather than go through the walls or go over the walls, the Persian general, a man named Cyrus, went under the walls of Babylon. Here's what he did, he dammed up the Euphrates upstream and he dammed the water up, diverted the water from the riverbed and then he marched his troops under the walls of Babylon into the city through the dried up riverbed. His move so surprised the Babylonians, the city fell without firing a shot. And overnight, the world's mightiest kingdom crumbled and a new empire was born, King Cyrus took the throne and ushered in the Medo-Persian Empire. Overnight, the rise of the Persians had a profound impact on the Jews. Verse 1 tells us, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Now, what a provocative start to a book. Ezra says that God manipulated the fall of one world empire and the replacement of its ruler in order to fulfill the words of an obscure Hebrew prophet named Jeremiah. You know, we attribute history-shaping events to sociological or to economical or to political or to demographical or to military factors. But this first verse in Ezra teaches us that God is behind the scenes of all world events. That God is the one who orchestrates the rise and the fall of empires. And how many times have you quoted this verse? Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? Anybody recognize it? Here it is. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That verse has been printed in more Christian greeting cards than almost any other verse. I know believers who've taken that verse and they claim it as their life verse. Probably some of you can quote that verse from memory. But I doubt if any of you know the verse that precedes it. Verse 10 in Jeremiah chapter 29 says this, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Understand, this promise of a future and a hope was first made to the exiled Jews living in faraway Babylon. God would bring them back to the land of their fathers And he would arrange the fall of one empire and the rise of another to fulfill his promise. Who knows the strings that God may pull to fulfill his promises in your life? Babylonian policy was to deport the people they conquered back to Babylon. And as a result, the city and its suburbs were filled with foreigners. But this was not Persian policy. The Persians figured that their subjects would be happier living in their native lands. And so Cyrus sent the dispossessed people home, including the Jews. Thus Cyrus sends out a proclamation. And he says, and I put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, it's debated, but Cyrus does sound almost like a believer. Notice he calls Persia's dominion over the nations a gift from God. He also makes God's cause his own, the building, the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm not sure, but we may just see Cyrus when we get to heaven. Here's his written proclamation, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah who is among you of all his people may his god be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah and build the house of the Lord god of Israel for he is god which is in Jerusalem and whoever is left in any place where he dwells let the men of his place help him with silver and gold with goods and livestock besides the free will offerings for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. You know, likely, King Cyrus was heavily influenced by a prophet in Babylon named Daniel. At the very moment that Cyrus' troops were flowing through the dried up riverbed, the very moment they were coming into the city, Daniel was before the Babylonian king at that time, a man named Belshazzar. And he was predicting God's judgment. In fact, God's hand was seen on the wall of the palace, writing that judgment, the handwriting on the wall. Afterwards, Cyrus appointed Daniel to a high-level post in his new cabinet. And I'm sure the very first thing that Daniel did with King Cyrus was to show him the scroll of Isaiah. For Isaiah chapters 44 and 45 predict Cyrus's rise to power. Catch this. 100 years before the man was even born. Isaiah mentioned Cyrus by name, 100 years before he was born. He even describes details of some of the events surrounding Cyrus's takeover of Babylon. God referred to Cyrus as a deliverer of the Jews. And evidently, Cyrus took this quite literally. He was serious about it. And so now he wants to live up to his prophetic portrait. Verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests of the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, while God is working in the heart of Cyrus, God is also working in the heart of the Jews. Remember, some of these guys had been in exile there in Babylon for 70 years. I mean, that's a lifetime. In addition, the prophet Jeremiah had counseled them to get jobs and to build homes and to settle in. They would be in Babylon for a while. And so many Jews had done just that, and they had become quite successful there in the region of the Euphrates. They had even risen to positions of prominence. Daniel was a good example. And as a result, few of the Jews really wanted to return. Now think about it. You're in Babylon. You've got a nice life. You're living in prosperity. You have succeeded in this new land. Jerusalem is nothing but rubble and ruin. Rebuilding is going to be hard. Why bother when life is so comfortable on the banks of the Euphrates? And this is why it took the Holy Spirit to move on their hearts as well as in the heart of the king to stir up a desire within them to obey. God moved on them to convict them and to reveal his will. And verse 6 records how the Jews who didn't obey the decree were allowed to help by bankrolling their brothers. It says, And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. Their support, no doubt, encouraged those who decided to return. Now, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Cyrus empties Babylon's coffers and returns to the Jews the treasures that had been stolen from Solomon's temple some 70 years earlier when the Babylonians had plundered the temple. And he returns each one. This is interesting. In fact, he provides a count, an itemized list. Here's the manifest. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400 All these Shezbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And this whole story is such a wonderful picture of what God has done in our lives. As I said earlier, God has a big eraser. Aren't you glad? He is the dispenser of second chances. He is the God of new beginnings. He forgives us. He wipes our slate clean. Despite the ruin that we've caused in our years in bondage, whenever we humble ourselves and repent of our sin, God is ready to give us a fresh start. And Jesus is our Cyrus. He is the deliverer. He is the one who died and rose and now sits on the throne of God. In the process, he overthrew spiritual Babylon, the kingdom of Satan, And Jesus has made possible the deliverance of everyone who was formerly under Satan's domain. And his decree is the gospel that he sent out. It's the proclamation that allows you and me to rebuild and to start over. Our new life, our restoration has too been paid for by Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus bankrolled our salvation on the cross. And even our former treasures... Valuables that Satan stole, they've been returned to us through Jesus Christ. Talents have been redeemed. Integrity has been recovered. Relationships have been mended. Joy has been rejuvenated. Purpose has been restored. Clarity has been renewed. All of those treasures Satan stole have been given over to us, those that are returning to start over. All that's left for us to do is to respond to the Holy Spirit's stern and to rise up in faith and to rebuild. But understand, Christianity is many things, but it's certainly this. Christianity is the willingness to start over. For you see, Jesus doesn't tinker. Slight alterations, minor modifications are not his goal. His intentions are not to help us attain our current goals. His intentions are for us to renounce our former lifestyle. Jesus wants to bring us an entirely new direction. He insists on a new lifestyle for those who follow him. You see, Jesus is not an accessory that we add to an already crowded life. No, when Jesus becomes Lord, his goal is to completely remodel. He guts us and starts over. You see, these Jews, they were uprooted, from Babylon. They were replanted in God's land, and that's God's goal for us. Jesus wants to uproot our worldly thinking and our worldly priorities. He wants to replant us in a new mindset, in a holy land, in essence. Hey, to be a Christian means leaving Babylon behind and moving to a new land, a new life. As I said earlier about remodeling, it costs more than you figured. So the decree has been issued. The Jews are ready to return. Chapter 1 closes with a packing list of treasures. Chapter 2 opens with a passengers list. It records the Jews who returned to the land at Cyrus's urging. Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah we'll study later, but another, Zariah, Reliah, he was reliable, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Rehum, and Bana. Now notice in chapter 1, verse 11, the leader in charge of the Jews' return is a man named Shezbazar. While in chapter 2, verse 2, the leader's name is Zerubbabel. So who was it? Was it Shezbazar or was it Zerubbabel? It could be that Shezbazar and Zerubbabel were the same person. Shezbazar being his Babylonian name, Zerubbabel being his Hebrew name. Or it could be that Zerubbabel may have started out as sort of Shezbazar's apprentice, We know from later that Zerubbabel was probably Shezbazar's nephew. The possibilities implied in 1 Chronicles 3 verse 18. So while Uncle Shezbazar actually started the Jews back shortly after they arrived, evidently he died off and he passed on his authority to his nephew, Zerubbabel. That's another possibility. Well, the remainder of verse 2 tells us, the number of the men of the people of Israel... And Ezra begins to list those Jews who returned with Zerubbabel to Jerusalem. The various families, the priests, the Levites, the singers. I'm not going to read all these names and embarrass myself for my ineptitude in reading them, but you can read them on your own. The gatekeepers and the Nethanim, verse 43. The Nethanim were sort of the temple servants. You could kind of call them the temple water boys. They're the ones that went out and cut all the firewood for the sacrifice and brought all the water up for the labor and so forth. He also numbers those whose pedigree was lost completely and they couldn't prove their Jewishness. He even lists those. Verse 64 provides the totals. The whole assembly together was 42,360. This doesn't include their servants, their horses, their mules, their camels, which he numbers next. But add up the totals from Zerubbabel's passenger list, and you end up with 29,818. Now, that's the count that we've just gone over. But the total was 42,360. You know, why the discrepancy? It's a good possibility that he didn't count the women in the total number. And so that's why it ended up, you know, more than the actual counts as he worked his way down. And understand this count was a cause for sadness. Understand, there were over a million Jews living in Babylon. And yet only 43,000 cared enough about God's desires to return to the land once they were able. The Jewish historian Josephus, he makes this comment, many remained in Babylon being unwilling to leave their possessions. It was their possessions that kept them there. It was the prosperity that had come upon them, had lulled them into a spiritual sleep. You remember those days when you didn't know when your next check was coming from? How you got on your knees and you prayed, you prayed, and you trusted God, and God supplied. You know, He provided. But you know, you you get a little money under your belt, you start drawing a bigger paycheck, there's a little bit of job security, and oh, how our attitude can change. How our perspective can change. This is what happened to the Jews. They became too attached to their surroundings and to their prosperity. They became frozen to the familiar. They became glued to the guaranteed. They became chained to the comfortable. Why give up a cushy, cozy existence for the rigors and the dangers and the uncertainties of Eliah? Now this word Eliah means going up. It's a modern day term for Jewish immigration to Israel. You know, today's Israelis recognize the right of Elijah, they call it. It's called the law of return. Today, every Jew, according to the government of Israel, has the right to return to their homeland. And yet still today, many do not. And they don't for the same reason they didn't in Ezra's day. It's too safe. It's too prosperous in New York City or in Atlanta, Georgia, or in these nice American cities. It's too nice in the land of exile than it is to return to their homeland. Reminds me of the prospective employer interviewing a young engineer fresh out of Georgia Tech. (laughs) He asked him, he said, what starting salary are you looking for? The Young man sort of Scratched his head and he answered, He says, Well, somewhere around $125,000 a year, you know, depending on benefits. The employer said, Wow, I said, "Uh, How would you like five weeks paid vacation and 14 paid holidays and full medical and dental and matching retirement funds and, you know, a car leased every two years? Hey, what about a red Corvette, a convertible? How about that? The young engineer, he kind of sat up straight and he said, Wow, are you kidding? The employer replied, yeah, but you started it. (laughs) You know, the young graduate was like a lot of people today, like you and I. He wanted it all handed to him, didn't he? Hey, God wants his people back in the land. He's opened the door to bringing them back. But it's not going to be easy. They've got to rise up in faith. They've got to trust God. They've got to move out in obedience The choice was comfort or obedience. God's way or the easy way. And at times, guys, we have to make the same choice. God's way or the easy way. Follow God or stay in Babylon. Remember, remodeling requires greater determination than you expected. When the exiles arrive in Jerusalem, they go to the Temple Mount. And the sight must have broken their hearts and brought tears to their eyes for what was once a magnificent temple, a reflection of God's glory, is now just a pile of rubble. Verse 68 tells us how that the sight of the ruins turned their heads. Some of the heads of the father's houses when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect in its place, According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachma, 5,000 mina of silver, and 100 priestly garments. And so the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the nethanim, dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. They gave generously toward this new temple. And notice the two characteristics of their giving, which should always be true of our giving. Notice we're told they gave freely or from their hearts, voluntarily. Always remember, God loves a cheerful giver. And notice too, it was according to their ability. Those who were blessed much gave much. And I think this is the genius behind the tithe. You think about it, the tithe ensures that those with more will give more. That's the way God intended for it. Chapter 3 tells us, And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man. They were united when they came to Jerusalem. Now the month was Tishri. It was the festive month or the holy month of the Jewish calendar. Three major feasts happened during the month of Tishri. The Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and Sukkoth or the Feast of Tabernacles. They all occurred in this one month of Tishri. Then Yeshua, the son of Josadak and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the Law of Moses, the man of God. This was the first step in rebuilding the temple. They built a brazen altar on which they could offer sacrifices to God. You see, without sacrifice, Judaism is a hollow religion. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. And the next few verses describe how they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, the various feasts of the new moon, and all the appointed feasts. And all this happened, verse 6, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also paid the craftsmen, and they collected materials. And then in verse 8, we're told, Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Do you remember in the tabernacle, the age requirements for the priest were from 30 years old to 50 years old. Here in Zerubbabel's temple, they, they back off on the beginning age down to 20 years old for the priest, probably because they didn't have as many priests as they needed. And so they needed to expand the parameters a little bit. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord. According to the ordinance of David, king of Israel, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Seven months after the Jews arrive in their homeland, the foundation of the temple is laid. It's completed. The priests and the people respond with a shout of praise. He is good. His mercy endures forever. It was a glorious day, and it should have been. For the most important phase of any construction project is the laying of the foundation. You see, without a solid foundation, the rest of the structure is in jeopardy. And the same is true with your Christian life, with my Christian life. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice this, the wise man builds his life on a good foundation. This is the house that withstands the storms. And here's how you lay a spiritual, a solid spiritual foundation. By hearing God's word and by applying it to your life. Notice what Jesus says. Whoever hears these sayings of mine, but doesn't just hear them, whoever hears them and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. That's how you build a solid foundation. You hear God's word and then you obey God's word. You apply it to your life. And guys, there is no other shortcut that works. If you want a solid foundation, this is how it's formed in a person's life. By hearing the word and applying the word, hearing the word and applying the word. This is how you build on scripture. The fool builds on the sands of emotion, or opinion, or what's faddish. And this is also how the church, the New Testament temple, lays a sturdy foundation. We exalt God's word. We take it seriously. We teach all the word and apply it to all of life and seek to obey it all the time. This is what lays a solid foundation for a church. It's been said a pastor is like an electrician. He takes a room full of live wires and sees that they're all properly grounded. Verses 12 and 13 give us an interesting insight. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. Now there were some old men in the crowd, 80, 90 years old. They had seen Solomon's temple with their own eyes. They had been witnesses. And they knew that this rebuilt temple was going to pale in comparison. For one, it was smaller. They could tell by just the layout, the foundation. And they also could tell by the materials that it was not going to be near as lavish or ornate. The craftsmanship was not going to be nearly as good as the first temple. We also know that the second temple, as it came to be called, Zerubbabel's temple, also was lacking spiritually. According to the Babylonian Talmud, there were five items that were missing from the second temple that were present in the first temple. First, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was never in the second temple. Second, the holy fire that burned on the bronze altar. Third, the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. Fourth, the spirit of prophecy, or the Holy Spirit. And fifth, the Urim and the Thummim. They were the tools used by the priests to discern the will of God. These five things were missing in the second temple. And so this lack caused the old men to weep. They realized afresh the consequences of their sin, what they had lost. Compared to Solomon's temple, oh my, Zerubbabel's was just a shanty shack. Whereas, on the other hand, the young men, they saw the foundation and they shouted for joy. Their eyes, you see, were on the future. And this was a significant step toward the reconstruction of their temple and their nation. And we're told that the weeping from the old guys and the rejoicing from the young guys sort of blended together to form a single sound. I think we've just found a good picture of true praise. I think true praise, true worship, should be the blending of both weeping and rejoicing. Real praise is the mixture of a broken heart over my sin and over my past and also a blessed hope and a faith toward my future. True praise is both repentance and rejoicing. It's both looking back and asking for forgiveness. It's also looking ahead and enjoying my forgiveness. It's sorrow over sin and it's joy in Jesus. It's the combination of this. In a single sound that becomes the purest praise. Well, chapter 4 tells us, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ishardan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, a work for God, any temple building would be easy if it were not for what happens here in chapter four. Opposition raises its ugly head. You can be sure whenever God's people rise up to do God's work, God's enemies will rise up in turn and try to stop them. Warren Wiersbe writes, as soon as God starts to bless, the enemy starts to battle. You'll know that in your own life. As soon as you get serious about God and try to lay a solid foundation, you'll encounter that there's an enemy out there who doesn't want you to follow that course. Samuel Rutherford put it this way, if we were not strangers on the earth, the hounds of the world would not bark at us. There were a group of people living in the land, a mixed race of Israelites and foreigners. Later, they would come to be called the Samaritans. And for these 70 years, they had enjoyed the land to themselves. They were unhappy that the Jews had returned home. A Jewish resurgence would throw a damper on their party. And in Ezra 4, Zerubbabel's enemies try three tactics to hinder the work of rebuilding the temple. Here they are. Infiltration. Second, irritation. And third, intimidation. And the devil will use those same three strategies against you. This is what makes any remodeling project messier than you anticipated. First, I want you to notice their attempt to infiltrate. Verse 2. They came to Zerubbabel and said, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. No, they didn't. Of course they didn't. They may have acknowledged that Jehovah was the God of the Hebrews, but they also worshipped other gods. They were idolaters at heart. And they get their answer in verse three. I like this. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua the priest and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded them. That almost sound rude, don't they? You're not gonna help us And here's why they take such a strong stand. Because they are acutely aware of the dangers of being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Be careful before you go into business with that unbeliever. Be careful before you take that first date with that unbeliever. I'm warning you, you get into more trouble by becoming unequally yoked with unbelievers than you even realize. Often Satan poses as an angel of light. He approaches us from a friendly posture with kind words, with good intentions, but don't believe him. He infiltrates in order to contaminate and devastate. Jesus warns us in John 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. Oh, I want to be your buddy. Oh, I want to help you. No, he doesn't. He wants to steal and kill and destroy You know, when it becomes apparent Satan can't wipe out a church, his next best move is to join it. Most of the time, he does far more damage from within than from without. Beware when the world appears as our friend. It's not. The world and the church are headed in totally opposite directions. And when the enemies of Zerubbabel realize that they can't infiltrate the ranks of the Jews, they next try to irritate their efforts, verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. All of a sudden they flood the rubble with hindrances and irritation, zoning ordinances and you got to get a permit and you got to have that special use permit and you hey wait a minute there's some building code compliances here. Anything just to irritate the Jews, cause them to conclude that it's not worth carrying on. You know, irritation is another one of Satan's most effective weapons. The Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, says, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. In other words, it's the daily distractions that take its highest toll on your marriage, on your relationship with your kids, on other relationships in your life. It's the constant friction. This does more damage than an outright attack. Did you know that the earth's termite population outweighs the human population two to one. Did you know that? There are twice as many termites on the planet than there are people. Imagine, there are a lot of termites out there trying to eat the wood in your house. And there are a lot of little irritations trying to eat away at your God-given joy and contentment and peace of mind. And notice the third way that they attacked Zerubbabel. It was through intimidation. We're told they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In other words, they tried to get restraining orders to stop the temple. They appealed back to Persia. In chapter four, they write two inflammatory letters to the kings of Persia, the two kings that reigned between Cyrus and Darius, verse six. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now we're gonna find an Ahasuerus when we study Esther, but this was not the Ahasuerus of Esther's day. This was probably the son of Cyrus. His name in secular history was Cambyses II. He died in 522 B.C. He shared his love for God, his father's love for God and his father's love for the Jews. And that's why their evil letter failed at first. But when the new king takes the throne, they try again. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Meredith, Tabul, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Now, again, we're going to run into another Xerxes. That's the king that allows Ezra and Nehemiah to return. This was a different king altogether. When Cyrus's son Cambyses died, a foreigner, a magician by the name of Gamata, pretended to be Cyrus's other son, Smyrdas. And amazingly, he was able to take the Persian throne for seven months. It was a short time, but it was long enough for Zerubbabel's enemies to bring their appeal to a man, this Gamada, who was unsympathetic to Cyrus' policies and who was unsympathetic to the Jews. Verses 8 through 10 gives a very long return address. And then the meat of their malicious letter is in verse 11. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth, Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Not much has changed, has it? Well, if you allow a church to be built here, they'll want tax-exempt status. They'll stop paying property tax, and lo and behold, it'll cut down on the government revenues. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the books of the records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. In other words, these rebellious Jews are gonna stir up problems for you in your western provinces. Don't let them take this action. Ever had anybody write a bad letter about you? Dirty letter to your superiors or inflammatory statements. This is what it was. This is what it must have felt like to Zerubbabel when he heard of this. Verse 17, the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwelt in Samaria and to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command and a search has been made and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, God has a big eraser, but man doesn't. I hope you know by now the world records your sin in ink. Man has a memory, and man is quick to hold a grudge. They dig it up. They say, oh yeah, Jerusalem has a history of rebellion. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax and tribute and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this, why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? And so on their second try, this letter from the Samaritans finds sympathetic ears, and they get the work stoppage, the injunction that they had sought. Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehom, Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus, the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Construction of the temple ends up shut down for 15 years. The foundation was laid in 535 B.C. The work ceased shortly thereafter and wasn't resumed until 520 B.C. As with most remodeling projects It takes longer than you planned. Chapter five. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in name of the God of Israel who was over them. Now, though the work on the temple had ceased, God goes to work on the hearts of his people. And he sends them two prophets to encourage them. And to keep the flame of hope alive, Zechariah and Haggai, and you can go and read their prophecies in the minor prophets. Zechariah and Haggai ministered to Israel during this time. I'm telling you, this setback must have deflated poor Zerubbabel. This letter was a punch in the gut. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. The prophet compares Zerubbabel's job of rebuilding the temple to leveling a mighty mountain. He tells him, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. In other words, Zechariah tells Zerubbabel, yes, this is a tough job. Yes, this obstacle in front of you seems like a mighty mountain, but through God's grace, he's going to level it. He's going to pave your way. The temple will be rebuilt. He's speaking encouragement to Zerubbabel. The Jewish leader will climb this mountain, and he will put a capstone on a finished temple. And verse 6 of that same chapter, Zechariah 4, tells Zerubbabel how it will be accomplished. And this is how any work for God is accomplished. Zechariah tells him, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zerubbabel, you need faith and you need patience. For God's work is a spiritual work. It won't be done by relying on human brains or human brawn, but by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the prophecy of Haggai also had to have encouraged Zerubbabel. Once work on the temple stopped, what did the Jews do? Oh, they went home, and they started working on their own homes. But it's Haggai chapter 1 verse 4 that issued this challenge. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Hear what he's saying to the Jews? The temple still, the God's house is still in ruins. Your house is being shown in better homes and gardens you got that layout in better homes. In God. I mean, look at what all you're doing on your house while the temple is still in ruins. you built these fine, nice houses for yourselves, but you've neglected the house of God. It was time for them to get back to work. And so Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Zerubbabel was the civil leader. Yeshua was the priest, the religious leader, and so they joined forces to resume the work on the temple. It's interesting. So Zerubbabel and Joshua were the two olive trees in the vision of Zechariah chapter 4, if you go back and read it. At the same time, Totani, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shether Bozni and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Now by now, this imposter, Smyrdas, has been deposed. And a true Mede has taken the throne, a man by the name of King Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shether boznai and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus to Darius the king. And he begins the letter, all peace. Now this letter, I'm gonna summarize it. It presents a brief history. How Nebuchadnezzar had toppled the temple how the Jews had been taken to Babylon in exile, how Cyrus had issued the decree to return and rebuild. And then the governor asked Darius to either validate or refute Cyrus's decree. Verse 17. Now therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus, to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us pleasure concerning this matter. In other words, we need an answer. In chapter 6, an answer arrives. Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. Apparently, it wasn't found in Babel. It was found at the king's summer residence and at Akmitha in the palace that is in the province of Media, A scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus in the first year of King Cyrus. They discover the decree. They dig it back up out of the archives. And they discover that this decree not only authorized the building of the temple, it laid out its dimensions, 60 cubits by 60 cubits. It gave work orders so that the workers would be paid from the king's treasuries as well the temple treasures were returned to the Jews. King Darius addresses the governor in verse 6. Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shether Boznai and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. In other words, get out of the Jews' hair. Stop hindering them. Let the work of this house of God alone let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. And notice this, this had to have just, oh my, this had to have infuriated them. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from the taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. Wow, how God is able to turn the tables. The men that tried to stop the construction are now commanded by the king to pay for it. Reminds me of Isaiah 54 verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. And Darius doesn't stop there. He says, and whatever they need, Young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven. Wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem. Let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Notice Darius' faith in God. He hopes the Jews will pray to their God for him and for Persia's royal family. Now, why is Darius being so generous? Darius had just witnessed a miracle. He was the king who was tricked by Daniel's rivals to throw Daniel into the den of lions. It was Darius. He was the one who rushed back the next morning. He's the one who prayed all night, you know, that Daniel wouldn't be harmed. And he rushed back the next morning and he, Daniel, are you alive? That was Darius. Darius. And God had answered his prayer and God had saved Daniel, his servant, from the mouths of the lions. And I'm sure Darius thought he owed Daniel one. No doubt about it. What better way to repay his debt than this decree on behalf of the Jews? Also, I issued a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. And let his house be made a refuse heap or a trash dump because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. Boom. And I'm sure the Persian seal was sitting right there on the paper next to his signature. (laughs) How about settling the matter? I think that did it, didn't it? Then Tatnai, the governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar, Bozni, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. And so the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The exact date, February 515 B.C. Then the children of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy, and they offered sacrifices and assigned the priests to their divisions as the prophet Zechariah had promised a project that earlier looked like a mountain to Zerubbabel became a plain was completely leveled through the power not of might not of human ingenuity but by my spirit says the lord god did a miracle on behalf of his people and god continues to do miracles On behalf of his people, if we'll just trust in him. Verse 19, and the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. The temple was finished in the month of Adar, which was the last month of the year. The Passover was kept in the first month of the year. And so, what a celebration it must have been! A new year, a new temple, a new Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren the priests and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful And turn the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And there we have the first six chapters of the book of Ezra.